This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we unveil the latest crown jewel of the NetApp portfolio, NetApp Hyperconverged. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi, and in the studio with me today is Mr. Andrew Sullivan. Hi. Hello. You are here. I am here. Oh my goodness. You've been traveling so much. We, you were missed. I know. I only have another week before I travel again. That's good. Um, and then I'll be on vacation that week, so none of us will be here. Uh, also with us today on the phone is Mr. Glenn Sizemore. Hi, Glenn. How you doing, Justin? I am super. All right. So, uh... We're going to get right into this because it's a very special podcast where we are talking about a brand new addition to the NetApp portfolio. And I won't spoil it right now, but we're going to go ahead and talk to the key speakers here, uh, Mr. Derek Leslie and Mr. Gabe Chapman. So, Derek, if you could chime in and tell us about what you do at NetApp and um, I guess what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, so at NetApp, I uh, came over as part of the SolidFire acquisition, um, so I'm really happy to be here. And I get the privilege of working on NetApp HCI, so on the on the product team. So I'm leading up those efforts, and I'm really excited to bring uh, a new product to market in such a such a big company with with so much influence. So it's a really good place to be right now. All right, and Gabe Chapman. Hey, uh, yep, Gabriel Chapman here. I am the uh, God, for lack of a better term, the HCI whisperer. I whisper to the HCIs. Um, now, in reality, I too, like Derek, came over with the uh, the SolidFire acquisition and have been focused on uh, bringing HCI to the field for NetApp customers, partners, and internal teams. All right, so there you have it. HCI, we're done. All right, that's it, right, guys? I mean, that's all we got to talk about? That, that's the announcement? So, so we're going to talk it. about storage grid, right? That's St- the storage grid, is that what this is? <laughs> no, HCI. So tell us about HCI. So it, most people are either unfamiliar with the term HCI or hyperconverged, or they are not familiar enough to know what it actually means. So I would I would challenge one of you to give us the elevator pitch for HCI here. I don't know. I'm going to put the sales guy on the on the spot, Mr. Whisperer. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So hyperconverged infrastructure. Um, uh, let's see this. We can go back and kind of do a, a precursor to kind of lay out how the market came about. Um, if you go back to 2009, Essentially, you have two companies that kind of came about roughly within a couple-month period, Nutanix and SimpliVi, that decided to take the traditional stack of infrastructure components and abstract away the complexity behind them and put it in kind of an all-in-one consumable package, right? So you had servers and switches and uh, storage arrays and appliances that all did things. Under the covers, those are naturally just commodity x86 components running some form of Linux. Uh, there's no reason why we could not virtualize those constructs, package them together, and and essentially sell you a, a consumable building block for the data center that provisioned storage, memory, compute, and laid a hypervisor on top of that to simplify the provisioning of virtual assets. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So let's talk about why someone would want to do that. Like, why would I want to do something like HCI rather than traditional storage architectures? I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it, right? If we started to look at, you know, the traditional siloed based IT shop, you know, I have my storage team, my network team, my server team, my virtualization team, the application team. And, you know, for, for those of us who spent a lot of time and worked in that space, a lot of times, whenever a new project would come about, it was kind of like a, a meeting of the five armies. Everybody would come in, you know, they kind of fight for their bit and piece, and things would slow down, and they would not, you know, respond to the business needs quickly. You see things like public cloud come about; they get a lot more, you know, uh, dominance, right? In terms of the application developers look at it's like, hey, I can just go swipe a credit card on Amazon and provision a workload. Um, so when the C-suite people come in and go, why can't we do that internally? Well, it's because of the complexity of that siloed architecture. So we started to see a shift towards more of an IT generalist mindset for some organizations where the virtualization teams essentially started to take over the provisioning of infrastructure because all the machines they were putting out there, you know, were the requests, were those those credit card swipes. 
So consolidating and simplifying that infrastructure into something that your generalist IT admin could do was a key component of hyperconverged infrastructure. So abstracting away the complexities of the storage array of, of you know, of the provisioning of, of physical assets and whatnot and making that kind of a, you know, a simple to deploy, easy to deploy, one size fits all approach, focus more on common denominator or the lowest common denominator in some respects to workloads uh, was attractive to a lot of people. Would you say this also consolidates and simplifies the overall buying of the storage units? So, I mean, so instead of buy, having to buy separate entities for this, would HCI simplify that? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, it, you know, one of the, so, you know, it, it, my background is I was one of these, you know, the first people that kind of went in and, as a sales engineer for SimpliVity, you know, in the very beginning times, um, before we even understood that the term hyperconverged for the most part, before it was kind of commonplace, uh, I could walk in and say, hey, you would like infrastructure to run, say, 500 virtual machines. Well, here is the two line item quote. Here's a quote with, you know, five units of box of hyperconverged. And here's a quote for support. And that's it. Right. Uh, I know most of us who've bought storage technologies from lots of different companies over the course of our career. Sometimes a quote for something like that, just the storage array itself could be five or six pages, right? So there was a, a huge ability to walk in and go, oh, everything you need is this in the box. The analogy I t- traditionally make is the all-in-one printer, right? If I go back to 2006 or so, you know, or a point in time when I had a flatbed scanner, I had a printer, I had a copy machine, you had a fax machine, you had all these different pieces and pieces. Isn't it easier to consolidate those down into a single device that does all of those things relatively okay and give it to you know anybody in your house t- to manage and leverage? Yes. And that was the value that you know hyperconverged brought. It was a simplification uh, of the process of provisioning a bunch of disparate pieces together, but in a, a consumable package that almost anybody could leverage. If you were to sum HDI up in one word, wouldn't you say it's just simpler? Right, everything about it is easier, more automated, more efficient. The, the major push in the beginning of HCI as it comes to market is the simplification effort. I think there are. I think we're starting to see a shift away from yes, everybody can do the simple part to now looking at more of well, hey, now we want to start to put more complex, sophisticated workloads on these platforms. Now we need to make sure that the underlying infrastructure or architecture of that solution can meet those needs. And I think that's one of the things that we've kind of you know gone after. Yes, we can do the simple day one, day zero provisioning, but the real meat and the, the solution is everything that happens after the fact and how well the system can scale to meet the requirements of the customer. So borrowing your printer scanner all in one combo example, would you also say that maybe HCI could save us some space, like in terms of rack space, data center utilization, or is that something that just is not really related to this whole solution? Well, I think anytime, you know, the the concept of the green in the data center is key in the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Obviously, the fact that I can consolidate storage and compute into a smaller form factor uh, and, and, you know, because we've gotten to specific densities now with solid state drives, because we do data efficiency, you know, like, you know, dedupe compression, thin provisioning, those types of technologies, we're able to significantly drop the footprint of the data center in many respects. Um, it really depends, I think, on the architecture and design of the HCI solution, depending on how it's packaged on whether you can scale those resources you know, independent of each other and kind of get a little more granular level of the scaling of the different disparate resources, or if I have to scale all of them all at once, it really is just gonna depend on you know, what the design point was like and really kind of what point you're going to go to in your journey into what we're traditionally calling next generation data center. I've heard the term next generation data center quite a bit, and let's go ahead and just knock that one out right now. So give me an example of what you mean by next generation data center so that we can kind of educate our listeners about what that might be. Sure. So, you know, the, the way I, we tend to present it is, is such, right? So I kind of, if I go back to, so I was like an end user for 15 years. I did storage and virtualization stuff for a long time. And, you know, if I go, let's start the year 2000, you know, back then, what was I doing? I was doing server consolidation. I was starting to put things onto storage arrays. I was creating SAN. I was starting to implement, you know, uh, processes that made my life simpler from a lifecycle management standpoint. Around 2004, 2005, we start playing around with virtualization. And virtualization simplifies our lives from the standpoint of that common server 
resource utilization, which was sitting at what, five or 6%. Now I could scale those resources up, virtualize a lot of things, put a lot more workloads in a denser package and simplify my, uh, my life there, right? And you know the common building block point to really enable a lot of that was storage area networks or SAN, right? So I had a storage place to put all my data. I had a lot of different compute nodes that would connect to it, and it made made for a very simpler, easier provisioning process. As those spaces started to expand, those customers started to get bigger. As we started to get towards you know 20%, 50%, 90% virtualized, we started to realize that there were a lot of challenges around how I automate and orchestrate that from a policy-driven data center standpoint. How do I get to IT as a service, you know, type of offering or infrastructure as a service? And that's where we started to see the public cloud giants come in and say, oh, you know, we've got this licked. You know, we had to do this really, really well. And like I said, going back to that example earlier when I was talking about it, is that those pressures of what public cloud can do force a lot of internal IT people to have to make cha uh, changes to their infrastructure to support that as well. So, you know, it's if you look at it from the Gartner world, it's mode one. It's kind of the old way of doing things. If you're looking at towards the next generation, it's mode two. It's cloud first strategy or it's IT as a service or something that, that all the as's that exist out there. It's leveraging those models to simplify, automate, orchestrate and, and get towards a more cloud-like implementation process. Okay. So let's go back to Andrew's original question that he asked before we got over their overviews here. So Andrew, if you could re-ask your bespoke question, because I, I don't remember what you said. Sure. What is the difference, right, from an operations perspective, from an infrastructure rate or uh, architect or infrastructure operator, as well as from a application user, right, application administrator developer perspective, between a bespoke infrastructure, right, one that has been created, right, crafted specifically for a particular environment, right? And most often this comes down to, yeah, we've got 20 years worth of stuff in the data center that's all cabled and cobbled together and it, it works versus something like a FlexPod, right, converged infrastructure uh, versus hyperconverged. Well, first, uh, we have to thank our friends in the United Kingdom for bringing the term bespoke to the public masses. Um, <laughs> Are we thanking Martin Cooper for that? Specifically, <laughs> we we can thank Mr. Coops <laughs> or or Mr. Pitcher. Um, you know, so reality is, I, I think a lot of it really boils down to who the customer is, what they want to do, right? A bespoke infrastructure. You know, if I look at Twitter, that's very bespoke. They've purposely built and delivered a, a platform to meet their specific needs, and it's it's probably better for them to do that than it is to kind of go out and try to buy. You know, they build versus buy, and I think a lot of those bespoke infrastructures are those type of builders, right? They, they take an open source technology, they run with it, uh, they don't feel like they have to be beholden to any one particular vendor, you know, or, or at the more traditional enterprise space, they have the ability to say, all right, well, I can take best of breed components and put them together. I have internal skill sets that allow me to do that, and by doing that, I can get to a competitive advantage, Right. Then there are other organizations that say, you know what, we're just more focused on the operational aspects of this and we want a simplified purchasing model. And we want, you know, we have a specific preference around what those vendors look like. And a converged infrastructure solution for them can definitely be of value, right? They can look and say, oh, we know we can get, you know, 6,000 virtual machines and this particular set of infrastructure and these set of outcomes uh, pushed up and running on this particular platform. Then, you know, obviously go into HCI, which is, you know, my general purpose IT people that go, huh, you know what, I know virtualization really well. Yeah, I know a little bit of SAM, but I just went to basically right-click, create storage and be done with it. Um, and maybe my environment isn't that sophisticated. So for me, an off-the-shelf appliance model is the one that makes sense. I think that that aligns, and, and thus far we've been pretty consistent. Of course, I would say that. Um, you know, on the podcast, we've traditionally just tried to simplify this problem down to who's going to use it, right? You know, let's just talk about who's going to be living with the infrastructure on a day-to-day -day basis, what that skill set is, what, what, what other work that that individual is expected to do. And, and that kind of helps us rationalize where in, 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 you know, that, that decision tree, as, as uh, Andrew laid it out, we find customers, right? If you still have architects and full-blown ops team with network guys and server guys and virtualization guys, you're going to be able to design something as good, if not better, than anything we're going to give you, right? And it'll be properly aligned to, with no waste anywhere inside the stack. It's also very expensive, and you need a lot of very specialized talent to do that. 
FlexPod lets you get rid of all those architect roles, right? You don't have to worry about the design. We take care of that. But you still need all those operations guys. You still need a network team. You still need a storage team. You still need virtualization teams. Today, you know, the, the tooling to make that easier is getting better, but, but you still need to have those. With an HCI market, typically there, we're just looking at an app admin. You know, they don't have to know anything beyond that. If they do, great. The system has the, the knobs that they can get into. But, but from an organization perspective, it just opens the door wide up, right? You, you, you can make the jump to owning your own infrastructure and having some control over your destiny without having to, to also like jump up, you know, 40, 50 people in staff. No, I think you're I think you're spot on there. And I think one of the things, though, is if it's hard to look at it, there is a little bit of a blurring of lines between those. I mean, I think you could apply bespoke practices to, you know, across all three of those same spectrums uh, and customer types. It just depends on what their comfort level is. And, you know, also really, for me, it's all about getting to the outcome that the customer wants, right? So, you know, we look at NetApp as a portfolio company. We have a lot of these technologies. They're tied together with data fabric that allows for, you know, global data management, portability, visibility type of thing, right? Um, that's kind of the additional bit of piece of the puzzle that we bring into the market with all of those different consumption routes or consumption methods, right? I can go the bespoke route. I can go the converged infrastructure route or package solution. I can go, you know, cobble together the bits and pieces that I really like, or I can kind of go for a simple approach that lets me just kind of build, take a building block and scale those resources. And, you know, in, in my viewpoint, I think we're coming to the market with something fairly, fairly unique um, with a lot of additional value add laid on top of a platform um, that is one of several consumption model choices. You know, there's no one size really fits all. It's really up to each one of the individual customers and how they want to approach this. But when it comes to the data management aspect, we have some additional secret sauce on there that really drives a lot of value, drives a lot of benefit to the customer. Okay. So from, from HCI's perspective, acquisition has to be incredibly simple. So if you fall down with a really complicated quote, like Gabe was saying earlier, and make it really hard for the customer to understand what am I getting, that's that's going to be your first hurdle because I've seen um, where we've talked to customers in the field where they have given us the feedback that but the other vendor's solution was just so easy. It was just so easy to understand. I knew exactly what I was getting. I didn't need to do 40 hours of training time. I could just go. Right. So that perception right up front needs to be easy. So, you know, down to even how we quote it, we've we've done it with six line items. Right. So six SKUs. There's three different sizes you can purchase, small, medium, and large for storage, small, medium, and large for compute. And those, those sizes go up uh, starting at 480 gigabyte for storage all the way up to 1.92 terabyte. And then from a compute perspective, uh, we start out with a uh, 16 core and go all the way up to, to 32 cores. So not, not small, uh, but it scales. So uh, from a scalability perspective, it's, it's really important to understand that you can mix and match any of these sizes. So from the customer perspective, they also have that initial acquisition comfort of, man, if I start off with the small, I can probably never go to the medium or the large because I'll be bought in. So yeah. they can have comfort to start where they're, they're good now. And then our infrastructure and the way we scale can all be combined uh, with one another later. That's so very it's, cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy. Because um, if you look at some of the other architectures out there, um, especially some of the, the newer flash players, you'll get bought into a size, right? And it's it's basically throw it away or send it to the DR site if you, if you need to go bigger. And uh, the bigger the size always where the cheapest, you know, dollar per unit of IT acquisition is going to be. But you don't necessarily start there. Um, you know, my first car, I didn't buy, uh, you know, a 15 passenger van, right? I wanted to make sure that, you know, I had a family first. So um, you buy what you need when you need it and then you can grow and expand uh, later on. So that's that's initial acquisition. From there, setup needs to be incredibly simple. So if you take an expert and, and have them deploy from scratch uh, a complete VMware environment, uh, you know, the storage system, do all the, all the networking, deploy the management VMs, deploy vCenter, uh, what would you guys say, how long would you guys set aside uh, how many days or hours would you set aside to complete all that from scratch? And probably somewhere between two two days to a week, depending on how much experience and how good the team was. Okay. Any any other opinions? 
Yeah, I would agree with that assessment, depending on the size of the infrastructure, right? all of those things. And would you guys characterize yourselves as experts or beginners, like generalists or beginners? Uh, you know, so where would you put yourself on that uh, spectrum? Well, I write FlexPod, so I better be an expert. Okay. There we go. I like it. I need a month because I'm really dumb. Okay. So deployment needs to be able to take a generalist. Uh, and give them the ability to deploy a complex infrastructure. And, and we've done that in, in 30 minutes or less. And by no means are we claiming we're the first people to do that. We just know to meet the simplicity score expected by HCI, that's going to be required. So we did deploy uh, you know, VMware, our, our all flash array, as well as all the, the VMs. And it took us the better part of a day. Um, and that's, you know, we consider ourselves experts in deploying that. And through automation, and everything that we've included in the HCI project with you know 30 inputs, you're going to deploy the entire infrastructure. So that's really easy. And that, that reduces the intimidation factor uh, for a customer going from the bespoke infrastructure or you know traditional three-tier, I'll buy storage from vendor A, compute from vendor B, we'll, we'll get networking off of eBay, and let's make it work. And it makes them feel really comfortable that man, I just saw that this is simple. I don't have to worry about getting this thing up and running and having my boss breathe down my neck. I bought that. Where is it? When can I start using it? So speed of time to value, right? How long does it take for me to get value out of what I purchased? And that just has to be really fast for HCI. So is that 30 minutes of unboxing, racking, and then all the way up down to, you know, provisioning the storage? Or is that like, you know, is, is the cabling is, is involved with that? I mean, what's, what's involved with the overall 30-minute uh, guideline there? Great question. Just because racking and cabling skills vary, um, we've all heard the stories of people racking gear and tipping over the, uh, the entire row uh, or a portion of that row. We like to not include that in our statements. The portions that we as a product... Um, when we're delivering NetApp HCI control, which is mean after we're cabled and powered on. So from the time we're cabled up and powered on, you can have the infrastructure up and running in 30 minutes. That's the, uh, that's the standard that, that we use for everything. Uh, th that's the same uh, measurement that we use for the FlexPod with uh, infrastructure automation. It, it, it goes from power on to usability. Yeah. So I was thinking more along the lines of when I think of something like, I don't know, a cluster and ONTAP, I think of all the shelf cables and, you know, all the stuff that's involved behind the scenes there. Um, mm -hmm. How does the hardware look from an HCI perspective? Is it looking similar to what we do with the ONTAP cluster or is it the Solifier cluster? I mean, what's it looking like? Yeah, good, great question. It's, it more similarly represents the architecture of SolidFire. So we have nodes and obviously we all know that ESX has nodes as well. So they're both scale-out systems, so it's a really good match. And what we've done is we t we've taken a generic chassis, like a blade chassis, that fits four of these nodes uh, or server blades. And like we said in the beginning in acquisition, you can put either a small storage or a large compute in any one of those um, empty blade uh, slots. So <clears throat> the hardware in the front is 24 SSD drives. Um, so you put those in, six are assigned per storage node, and we don't use any local storage for, uh, for the ESX nodes. And as you scale out, you just add six drives in the front for storage and one, one sled in the back and add it to your cluster. So it's really, really, really simple um, from a hardware perspective. Uh, on networking, we've chosen to go with 25 gig. And that, that's a pretty interesting choice because a lot of people initially give us the feedback of, Hey, we're just not there yet in our data center. Uh, what do you guys What do you guys think of going straight for twenty five gig? Twenty five makes a ton of sense, man. Uh, they, cool. They, uh, the 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 networking world, you know, they doubled and quadded up ten gig, and, and we got forty gig lines. But then mm -hmm. they needed hundred gig for the backhauls, and then in developing the hundred gig, they discovered that it was cheaper to build twenty five gig and bond four of them together. So th they've just skipped an entire generation, which is on its way out anyways. Yeah. And they're on the future bandwagon. Yeah, I, I agree. And the the little known fact about 25 gig that unless you really look into it, it's an SFP 28 connector. So what that means is that an SFP plus, so meaning your reuse your word bespoke infrastructure when you're plugging in your existing 10 gig switch into our systems, it works. But as soon as you upgrade to 100 gig or 25 gig, because there are 25 gig native switches coming out, um, there's a couple out already. 
it just works. So you don't have to. We give you, we've given you essentially dual port. It's 10 or 25. So uh, we think that'll be really good um, for the future of our customers' data center. Like I said, as they're going towards the next generation data center, redesigning, deciding what should I go for? Hey, we skipped 40 gig. What's next? What are we going to deploy in our infrastructure now? Uh, we think that'll be a very popular choice with the customer base. I was going to shoot for the fiber channel over token ring option, but I I got shot down. I am the lord yeah. of the token rings. Your Bluetooth idea. We we killed your Bluetooth idea too, Gabe. Sorry. Oh, pretty sweet. Well, yeah, I mean, I was I was mainly commenting on the um the 32 gig versus 40 gig because 25 gig is uh, it's not something you hear about a lot. It's becoming the new 10 gig, right? People are going from you know figuring out what's next. I think I've just seen people who have, again, chosen to just skip 40 gig all they're all together because maybe it was too much, too expensive, too proprietary, um, are settling on, on 25 gig. And the switch vendors, um, you'll see the major ones are following suit. And that's the real indicator, I think. No, I mean, one of the things behind it is is simplification of LAN on motherboard. You know, so, you know, 10 gig ports are the predominant de facto ones that go on there now along with the one gigs. Um, it's it's easier to take that form factor and uplift it, but also it doesn't require a huge amount of shift on the optics that a customer has to use. Whereas in, if you wanted to go 40 gigs, sometimes you had to go to a, a very, you know, not a cheap set of optics to go pure 40 gig and with one cable, or you had to break it out into four. And so that caused some challenges, some headaches as well. So it really kind of depended on how the implementation was brought fold. And, you know, 40 gig just didn't get quite the adoption that I think we were looking at getting. Um, but the the ability of the server manufacturers to get design wins with the common people who make these technologies, um, it was easier to go with something that customers had already been fairly comfortable with and didn't require a lot of physical or significant uh, changes to their infrastructure. So it also sounds like it may have been an economics decision, right? Like uh, keeping the price point of this particular product at a place where we don't have to seem like the most expensive option by adding something like 40 gig, which is, you know, what mm -hmm. I'm hearing is largely unnecessary. Yeah, 40 gig, I, in my view, it is no longer necessary right now that there are the cheap 100 gig and 25 gig options. As I talk to all of our switch vendors and partners, uh, they're exactly that. There's just not the huge price delta. I mean, if you originally, uh, a couple years ago, if you wanted to go after 40 gig or if we pitched 40 gig as a storage company, the total cost of ownership ripping out your existing switching infrastructure is a little too high, right? So they were really steering away from that. So this is a much easier, no-brainer acquisition. Uh, customers that don't even want to think about 25 gig, they just don't have to. They can continue to use their 10 gig infrastructure, um, and that'll be fully supported. And it's not, you know, an additional set of SKUs or something different that we have to support. But that's another thing. No, no customer, as they're moving towards their next generation data center, wants to be the special customer or the only one running in a certain config. So the fact that we're helping the entire broad set of our customer base standardize is, is really helpful, even from a networking perspective. We are choosing to target from a hypervisor perspective on what we're deploying at first and automatically setting up for them to be VMware. So uh, we're starting out with VMware 6.0. We'll have a fast follow of 6.5. And that's largely because a, a huge part of our customer base and a, and a very large part of the HCI customer base is still at VMware. Now, that's not the limit of what we support. And this is a really important detail. Our HCI storage can be externally mounted by um, OpenStack through Cinder, uh, through K on KVM, Hyper-V, Zen, uh, or even another ESX uh, environment can also mount our storage. So it's not a proprietary closed storage system. So we are deploying and automatically setting up VMware, but we do support far more than that. So for that user, what we've done is we've ex uh, greatly expanded our vCenter plugin. And you can do 100% of the operations that you're going to need to on a day-to-day -day basis in, inside of vSphere. So that's really convenient. We, we talked to a lot of our early customers uh, and prospects on this, got some feedback from our strategic partners. And if you're running a VMware environment and you have those tools set up and you have that automation, you're not necessarily looking to change that all at once. Now, we're not saying it's not in their vision to go to Hyper-V or try some other hypervisor like OpenStack on KVM, but for the VMware environment, they want to stay within vCenter. So do you guys have any, any comments or feedback on that? No, I, I, I think it's the only sensible approach in, in uh, 2017, right? The, the vast majority of the market is still VMware. 
So obviously, if you want to be able to address the largest portion of the problem, you need to, to, to service those customers. And then what comes after that, you know, that, that'll be interesting, but we'll all wait and see. Yeah, no, here's the unfortunate thing. We're going to get do- uh, we're going to get knocked a little bit about, you know, not having uh, support for vast amount of hypervisors. But we have to realize, like, our work definitely a quality first company um, and we listen to our customer base and what they want. Um, while we could build our own custom hypervisor or uh, do something you know, completely proprietary, it's honestly where the customer base is going. I'll kind of hit, hint at our direction of, you know, we're not going to close you in and lock you in. We're going to remain uh, very open-minded and, and focus on migrating workload and really getting into the data fabric on being able to migrate your data and manage your data um, versus lock you into a big, long contract. So that'll be more of our focus. And inside of vCenter, uh, we even integrated into vCenter alarms. So typically, uh, administrators will have uh, at least a few vCenter alarms set so that when they're in there, they know what to be alerted on. All of our system reports in through vCenter alarms. So you don't have to go look to a third-party um, site or go log into something new. And if you already have a monitoring or knock, uh, network operations center that is integrated to vCenter alarms, well, it, it's automatically integrated with NetApp HCI. So it will all just work. The decision to use VMware, because like you said, they're the largest, I think is good. I mean, you have to let the market drive that decision, especially for initial product rollout, because if you don't, you're just basically playing guesswork. And I, I don't think that's a good strategy to use for a product you're trying to make successful. You want to base it on real data, real usage, and real feedback from your customers as opposed to just trying to, to tell them what they're going to want. So and one of the really important things that we're focusing on is the workload. We look at the market today. They've simply said, I love the simplicity and the ease of use and, and how well this HCI infrastructure works together. But what happens when I try to migrate my database workload? Uh, I've, I've heard that it can handle databases. I've also heard HCI is really good for uh, VDI or end user computing. And I'll do a little bit of server virtualization. Um, and what about when I migrate that all into the same infrastructure and not over provision? That today is where you know today's HCI falls down because they simply can't hand that, handle that. And when we talk to analysts, there's tons of east-west traffic um, altercations. There's, you know, where you try to do basically old-school tiering, which is labeled data locality, meaning I try to move it to the tier that's closest to the VM um, to get a local read. That's not even SAN technology. That's just attempted local storage at all time technology, which is kind of stepping uh, back in time. So we've combined the guaranteed quality of service um, that you set up with a single click uh, with HCI so that you can confidently migrate your workloads and get all of the simplicity onto NetApp HCI. And that will yield great results for our customer base because you wouldn't uh, imagine how many people are saying, hey, I know the answer is HCI. Let's go, sol- let's go find a problem for it. And we can handle a lot of problems with that storage technology, um, being able to give per tenant uh, isolation and guaranteed performance. So a, a couple of questions for you. Um, so the the primary interface for the administrator is going to be vCenter. Is that also the user interface? And does that surface up things like uh, hardware failures, right? I, I had a hard drive fail on the storage system, right? Those types of things, are they all through that one interface? Yes, everything, everything will come through there. So you can get all the information on logging, uh, current status, any faults within the system, uh, and then through vCenter alarms, right, that's going to combine uh, both from the ESX host side, from the vCenter server side, as well as from anything going on with the uh, NetApp uh, AFA that is powering that underneath there. And AFA, for those of you who don't know, is all flash array. Yes, that'll be a pretty seamless transition for vCenter administrators already because they're familiar with the interface. So they'll be able to use it pretty uh, seamlessly when they're trying to integrate our stuff. Yeah, and when you're trying to sell a guy um, new technology, that's definitely a win um, to say, and it will work exactly like your other things, except you won't be getting calls in the middle of the night for performance problems, because we'll handle and automate that for you. But you can manage it the exact same way you manage your other infrastructure. And what we see the market wanting is to to make, you know, kind of make the IT problems go away or make the IT department go away. Don't make me put in a ticket to make this change. Just Give me, make me capable 
of making this change, make it easy, make it, make it easy to understand and be informed on how and why I need to do this. And, you know, that's, that's really resonated well with our, with our early partners and customers. So are we going to be using VVOLs in order to assign those QoS policies to the virtual machines? Great question. So a lot of customers will ask us, hey, do you rely on VVOLs? Is that required? And the answer is no. You can do both. You can use data stores and VVOLs or just VVOLs or just data stores. So we're compatible with both technologies. And that really is up to your style of infrastructure management and what you want to do. So if you use VVOLs today, you're going to have storage policy-based management on a per VM basis. And one VM has, you know, three to four, uh, typically three or four virtual volumes on our side. So that's that's a dream, right? That, that's almost too easy. Uh, it's like, you know, giving a, a MLB player a, a T and just saying swing because that's exactly what we want. So with the data store, we had a, a few more challenges and we solved that by partnering with VMware with storage IO control. So it assigns shares on a per VM basis. And we take those shares, those get interpreted as min IOPS. So no matter where that VM goes, what data store it goes to, it always has the minimal amount of IOPS it has. And we do a multiplier for max. And then the storage IO control, um, it assumes that the underlying storage is consistent always there and has the IOPS it expects. And then it, it can enforce the fairness. So without that, it can't really enforce the fairness. So we're able to do this per tenant guaranteed QoS or per application QoS either way. And, and it's, it's good to have options and even try both uh, if, you're, if you're a new customer looking at what, which option's best for you. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I love the fact that we're not forcing customers down a particular path. Would it be safe for me to assume that VVOLS is a strong preference and we would be looking for customers to, to try that? I, I can't say that with confidence because Interesting. Um, I'm not seeing the, the market evidence. I, I see the anecdotal evidence of, wow, this sounds great. It really meets our architecture needs and I wish people would do it. We, we do have some very large customers that are using VVOLS. But I, I'm consistently surprised when I do hear uh, some of our largest partners and customers saying, you know what, it's just not for us. We're not, we're not going to do it. And that could be two reasons. One, this is the way I'm always used to doing it. And I don't see the advantages of changing. And it, it's a new way. Like how, how many years have we been provisioning our applications on data stores? And I don't think people are just going to you know, switch to VVOLs immediately, there's going to be some, some fear there. So fear of not knowing, will this work in my environment? And then the other thing is, it, especially in VDI, is that's just too many volumes. So 10,000 VDI seats times, let's say, an average of four volumes per VDI instance. No one wants that many volumes to manage if, if you're a VDI administrator. I'd much rather go back uh, to Horizon and have, you know, hey, here's my few dozen uh, data stores, and I, I know how to manage it. I know where it is. So, uh, for for a couple reasons, uh, I don't know how how you know how would you guys feel about those, but I'm just not seeing it. And, yeah, and there's there's a still a strong push from VMware to to make it happen. So, hmm, but but none of those I, w I would imagine with the with, with our ACI offering, none of those challenges are there, right? They're not having to think about or manage the storage. That's what that's that's what the the platform itself is taking care of. Mm -hmm. And the VVOLS provider is is just going to abstract away all. So who cares? Like, yeah, 10,000 volumes, that's a lot for a person to take care of. But computers don't care how big the numbers get. Yeah, and I think we'll, I think we'll see that mindset come to light more and more with HCI. Because typically the feedback um, that we're hearing is, oh, a storage guy knows that there's going to be this many volumes. And He's, he's not going to be in control of it. So as you see the next generation data center coming, I think that'll be there. But largely, people are just a little scared to change, I think. Um, I would love to see us be more successful with VVOLs in the market because, again, uh, we should want that. You know, we, we have storage technologies that uh, can take, take advantage of that like no one else in the market can. I think it really kind of boils down to customer preference and their comfort level, right? You know, I think you go look and survey the market, there are... There are not a lot of arrays today that really service VVOLs properly or very well. And so I think people have kind of been gun shy about it because it hasn't gotten the same level of adoption. But if mm -hmm. you look at 
VMware vSAN technology, you start to see a large amount of adoption to it. And, and it's built on the same premises of, you know, simplifying automation, storage-based policy management, you know, software-defined data center constructs, leveraging the software infrastructure to provision and manage those things and abstract away the complexity of having to deal with 7,000 volumes, right? You can go in there and create tiers and precious metal tiers and align them any way you want, and you kind of automate that process. And we saw a lot of that in the OpenStack world um, being now applied into the traditional VMware-based world, where, you know, I look at it from the standpoint as a former VM administrator myself, I would have loved to be able to go in and set per VM level QoS to segment performance between disparate virtual machines and make sure that there was no competition or resources, period. And I think a lot of people would love to have that contract, but they definitely need to test it out and see how it works in practice. And in, you know, in theory, it sounds great, but in practice, it may be a different thing. The, the beauty of our platform, because it's based on the SolidFire technologies, we already have about six years worth of proof points around multi-tenancy disparate workloads, leveraging QoS technologies, now we have about, you know, uh, you know, with the release of the VVOL technology in the last software release, now we have customers at proof points that we can go back and say, hey, here in an HCI solution, here's the first one that actually provides fully functional VVOL support. And on top of it, we're going to let you segment workload uh, based on performance characteristics. And then we'll do 100% of it automated as it integrates with the, the common tools and practices that you use today. I think that's a compelling argument for a lot of customers to start to take a serious look at it. I look at it a yeah. lot like the NFS V3 versus V4. So V4 has been out for a while, but there isn't a huge amount of adoption. And, and again, it goes no. back to Derek's point. You know, if, Why would I replace something that's already working for me very well with something that isn't necessarily compelling for me to move off of and that hasn't been vetted thoroughly by everyone else? So you, know, there's, there's, you have to wait for the fear of missing out to overcome the fear of being the first adopter. Dude, I suffer from FOMO for sure, fear of missing out. Absolutely. And and conventional wisdom tells me go to VVOLs, but again, like I said, conventional wisdom is often wrong where you just don't see that you don't see the benefits. And I think um, that's something that you know we've been trying to work on with our partnership with VMware is really compelling our customers to understand the value and force them to have a reason to pivot, right? They need a a something like my life will be better because uh, statement for their individual business to see why it's worth the effort. And also, um, you know, migrating from the underlying storage technology, how many customers that you guys have talked to, has that always 100% of the time always gone perfectly when you change something about storage? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, but listen, anytime you touch the storage tier, that's the most terrifying thing you can do in IT ever, exactly. every single time. But yeah, I, I'm a little more bullish than, than you are. I feel perfectly confident saying, you guys should try VVOLs. Like th that should be your first swing. Like I get it. It, it, it there's a lot of anxiety uh, and and fear associated with change, but but <laughs> choosing to manually have to micromanage an aspect that, yeah. that has been fully automated is just silly, in my professional is. opinion. Like you, we need to to make those transitions. They need to be safe, right? We need to make sure that we test it and all that fun stuff. But you know. With, with with the SolidFire VVOLS provider, you know, the, we don't really have fear there. It's a great platform, and it, I, I I would go into it broadly. So the nice part about us is that we don't have to make a choice. We can support both both options. So uh, it's a really cool place to enter the market, um, especially if it's not decided, you know, A versus B. Uh, I think it's uh, really cool for us to be able to uh, give them both, you know, run them simultaneously, pick one or the other, and it really doesn't matter to us because we can deliver a similar quality and, and similar value proposition for our customer base. Fundamentally, you know, if, if we look at this to, to bring it back home to what HCI is, is not a, it's not a storage technology. Yes, the most complex and hard to lick problems are in the storage layer for hyperconverged infrastructure, but it's the most simple to manage and administer. It's how big, how fast, and who should access it. And that's really the three points that you should actually have to determine when you're provisioning storage constructs with inside a hyperconverged environment. The value is in the packaging and simplification and rapid deployment and scalability of the solution um, is a common building block approach, right? And then additionally to that, how you can scale the resources independent of each other. So it's, um, you know, Moving away from just the pure storage portion talk 
points about it. It really is a, a more of a comprehensive infrastructure stack solution that we're providing. And while the storage is important, and it's definitely part of all the decisions that you're going to make, there are a whole bunch of additional decisions that need to be made on top of that. So if I'm an application guy, right, I'm a consumer of HCI, what does this look like to me, right? How do I, when I define things like I need X number of VMs with Y amount of CPU and RAM and X or, or Z amount of storage with whatever policies, how does that, how do, how do I express my requirements? How do I get that uh, end result, right, after it's been provisioned? So, so for us, we do have a VRO uh, plugin, you know, coming out soon. So... Hopefully, um, you automate that through one of those workflows. But if not, it's kind of the same, right? So you go and say, create VM. I'm obviously modeling this after what would you do in the GUI. Uh, create a VM, storage, uh, select a policies. You know, say you did gold, silver, bronze. Say, hey, this one needs uh, gold storage because it needs really, really fast storage. Uh, and you say provision. So. Uh, it kind of fits into our goals of really making the complexity high. So you just create the VM and then select in the drop-down box what you want. And we've also extended our, our vSphere capabilities of, again, if you're not using vVols, you can define in line, oh, I want a min, max, and burst QoS of what and, and which size. So it, it's really, really simple. Um, there's there's nothing to, to go through with what type of RAID groups. You now that's gone. We don't use that. What type of disk? You know, we've separated the media and the performance. You just have a pool of performance and a pool of capacity. Uh, so it, it's really how you would want it to be if you're an administrator. You simply decide, uh, I need CPU, RAM, uh, and storage of X with performance of Y and, and go. So, so hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, thank thank you. Right, I think it makes a lot of sense. In particular, right, as you said, using vRealize Orchestrator, right, using the tools that exist inside of the VMware ecosystem, allowing, uh, you know, teams that already have existing VMware automation in place to simply leverage that as it stands today. Right, we're not doing anything fancy. We're not going, or or, or leveraging or putting on top a bunch of different requirements. Yep. Well, yeah, and also you don't have a lot of the. The caveats associated with some of those first-gen technologies around data locality and how does that affect my DRS and, you know, how do I, am I able to scale uh, significantly, you know, past six or eight nodes? Because, you know, a lot of those early systems had a challenge with metadata and how do they track all those informational changes? We've, we've, we've solved those problems quite some time ago. And I think that that's one of the bigger issues of bringing a very mature scale-out storage platform into hyper-converged infrastructure that doesn't have any of the caveats associated with kind of um, some of those first-generation packaging exercises. So yeah, as we're starting to close, like one thing that we haven't touched on is scaling. So as you scale, a lot of the customers that we've talked to, especially I just talked to a huge financial services firm that they have to buy still, and they buy, you know, these are three, $4 million a piece, so they're spending a lot of money, but they're buying compute when all they need is storage. So they don't, they thinly provision no compute, right? That everyone gets gets full access, dedicated compute, um, but they're always running out of hardware for storage. And obviously you'd think if we were approaching this market, we, we definitely design this for independently scalable resources. So at a node at a time, you can buy one node of any type of storage, one node of any type of compute. And that speaks to the financial side of this, that you don't have to waste the money. And there is no tax or overhead because what you've seen uh, the competitors do is they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, if you're running a VMware environment, you need to deploy uh, one of our, you know, it, it's a, you know, their own proprietary virtualized storage and it works. They're trying to adjust, but that's never gonna be as strong uh, as our architecture is uh, for getting you the best bang for your buck and not having to use compute resources to run storage and having that overhead. So do the, the day 365 operations, do they follow the same principles of, of a, a core solid fire product, right, where I can add and remove nodes at will, uh, et cetera? Yeah. yeah, you can. So I think about the only people that aren't excited about that are the people within NetApp that have to keep track of where the nodes are and who has support and where, because we talk to them about, yeah, I mean, we've had customers with two nine node sites and they needed uh, they needed a six node cluster at site C 
and they took three nodes from each cluster and sent them to site C, um, customers love that. They love scale up, scale down, right? Because then you not only get the protection of I can go any size, but man, if I overshot, I can move it. That's that's fantastic. So um, absolutely, we're gonna we're gonna support that 100% with NetFHCI. Awesome. Anything uh, anything else that uh, we we should definitely touch on this first episode? I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions from the listeners, and maybe even have to get you guys back on here. No, I just think that uh, we're really excited to bring this out and get our feet wet in HCI. We know we're we're not the first to market, but we'd like to say we're coming to market correctly and, and really listening to our customer base and, and looking at the market and seeing what it needs. So uh, we hope you guys are as excited about it as we are. Is your slogan HCI, we come correct? <laughs> uh, it should be. <laughs> it should be. Um, and it's, you know, it's a cool advantage to be able to learn from the market and learn from what's out there existing and, uh, you know, not have to spend the cycles of, Hey, here, release a feature, pivot or persevere. So it's really cool to just be able to, uh, start with a, a really clear vision on, on what we should do. So we're, we have a good advantage here. Gabe, you got anything to add? Live long and prosper. Okay. It works for me. <laughs> No, just really excited about uh, you know getting a chance to bring this product to market with NetApp uh, logo on it. I think it's a, been a long time coming. There's a lot of people in the NetApp uh, organization that have been chomping at the bit to get a, a product to go out there to market with, and we're listening to our customers, and uh, we've surveyed the marketplace and seen what has come before us, and we've made some purposeful design decisions uh, that will allow us to bring this product into the enterprise uh, core enterprise customer base. All right, Gabe, thanks. Uh, if we wanted to get in touch with you or Derek on social media, how would we go about doing that? For me, I'm uh, on the Twitters. I am Bacon is King. Uh, some of you may follow me. Uh, that's the best way to reach me. Obviously, you know, LinkedIn, Elo, whatever. You know, there's about 50 different ways to stalk people online right now, but the Twitter is probably best. Wait, did you just say Elo? Yeah. <laughs> Are you like the one of five users on that? That's fantastic. No, I signed up for it and I still get the email alerts, but I've never been I do it. too, but I've never been there. Excellent. We should we should add each other an Elo and that'll be one of our three people. Hello. <laughs> All right, Derek. How do we so get yeah, to you? I'm mostly on AOL Instant Messenger these days. So that's uh that's Derek J. Leslie. Just kidding. Um it's Twitter at Derek J. Leslie as well as LinkedIn. And yeah, happy to extend the conversation and interact with you guys. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. Also, we have a YouTube channel. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Gabe Chapman and Derek Leslie for talking to us about NetApp HCI. As always, thanks for listening. Wait, what do we put on YouTube? We, uh, I take the audio from the episodes and put a Tech on Tap logo there so people can listen to it without having to download it. Pretty nifty, huh? Somebody asked for that on the podcast. I think it's brilliant. So. Is it just me that's getting We've also got transcripts that are coming up. Oh, soon. yeah. So if you like, you want text transcripts, we'll have those as well. We're stepping into the 20th century here. Fantastic. What we don't tell you is we have a little monkey that actually transcribes the entire episode. Can I get the oh, episode on the once they read it? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh.